Welcome to Shed, a podcast brought to you by the Vineyard Gazette. I'm your host, Eric Adams. During the fall of 2020, I interviewed members of our Martha's Vineyard community about the impact and implications of race in their lives. As a practicing therapist, I was interested in exploring the unique experiences that shape the lives of each guest and influence the way they see themselves and the world. We chose the name Shed to encourage listeners to do away with old beliefs that no longer serve us and to shed some light on systemic racism and its effects on us as individuals as well as the communities in which we live. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy the show. I just get some water. Hello again and welcome to Shed. I'm your host, Eric Adams. I've been thinking a lot about and reading about systemic racism in education, both at a national macro level and also what it means for our local high school. And we're really excited today to have two guests from the Martha's Vineyard Regional High School, Amy Lillevois, who is the School Adjustment Counselor and the Wellness Coordinator, and Dakir Warren, who is the Administrator of Student Affairs. Welcome to Shed. Thank you. Thank you. Nice to be here. I'd like to start by learning a little bit more about you each. My role in the school is to focus on mental health issues with kids. And I think in the work that I've done, I've worked primarily with adolescents, first in the community mental health agency as a domestic violence rape crisis worker to a mental health counselor. And now I'm over at the high school. And all of those issues exist and keep us very, very busy. You see racism, Dakir? Absolutely. I think the very denial of racism is is racist. Um, I think my experience as an African-American male is different in the way that I see racism represented toward me is more, I feel, in line with the implicit biases that mm-hmm. I experience. It is absolutely alive. It's absolutely well. I think like it's much more subtle. It's much more passive, but it is here. I mean, have you had your own personal experiences around bias? I do. And, you know, For me, I've been working at the high school for, this is my 16th year, 15th, 16th year. And in all that time, Dakir is the first administrator of color that I've had the pleasure of working with. I'm in this odd situation where I am biracial, but I can certainly pass as white. I was Mm -hmm. raised as white and I could pass as white. Mm -hmm. And it, again, wasn't until Dakir came that we started having these conversations about what we're seeing around us and that I felt comfortable talking about what my experience has been trying to support all students of color. So there are unique challenges that kids of color are facing at the regional high school. Yes. Yes. It's not shocking. It's devastating to hear about the microaggressions that they experience on a regular basis in our high school. I don't think any of our staff are doing anything purposely. It's all about implicit bias and what, you know, now Takir and I feel like it's our charge to like work with our staff on that so they could hear the voices of these students and what they've experienced. So how can the school do better? You know, the first thing is seeing yourself represented in the halls of the school, a place where you are supposed to be able to engage in, in exploring your curiosity um, and being exposed to opportunities to have or gain a different worldview. And I think it really starts with being able to walk into a building and see that you matter and that really comes from seeing yourself and whether that's through the flag of your country being up or, you know, leaders and, you know, uh, that have impacted, you know, your communities, whether it's the books that are in the libraries, the integration of, uh, you know, these topics in curriculum, your 
teacher, most importantly, in a lot of respects, and the efforts that are in the programming that's provided. So I think just generally kids of color walk into the high school under difficult circumstances, especially at a stage in life where they're trying to find themselves. The expectations, um, I think one of the big challenges is, you know, kids are leveled before they get to the high school. So they're trapped into a certain level of classes, whether, you know, in C1 is like our general tier. You have honors and then you have AP. So coming in, you're basically already typecast into what your possible outcome is going to be for school and what you can navigate. And with that comes lack of education for parents. You know, if your kid has always been tracked on the C1 level, you don't know about honors. You don't know what it takes to advocate for your kid to have an opportunity with regard to your post-secondary plans. You certainly don't know about AP. You certainly aren't skilled to compete. Um, and there are no opportunities to enrich those skills that could get you there. So I think even in just the makeup of our academic structure, it's another clear example. And there's a lot of reasons for that, that go beyond the culture of the school. Mm -hmm. Every week we have an SAT meeting. It's a stu student assessment team meeting. And we really look at the data of attendance, discipline, and grades. And we have this protocol where we look at the data and then we all take a few minutes and we think, you know, what are we wondering about all this data? And what comes up week after week is, I don't have the exact number, but the high, high majority, probably 90 plus percent are students of color. Does that alarm anyone at the school? Well, it does in the moment. Wow, that's shocking. Okay, we're going to talk about that mm -hmm. next week. And then next week comes and it's the same thing. And it's finding, again, like with anything, right? It's finding the time to do that. I've worked with a number of kids in the high school over the years, and almost always the kids of color talk about having a target on their back and feel like they're being treated by a separate set of rules, that there are more eyes on them than their counterparts. You feel that's true? I agree with it in the sense that, again, if you look at the data that we have from these student assessment team meetings, if the majority of kids that are hitting all the markers, poor attendance, poor grades, poor discipline, those are the students of color. What I feel our students experience is an inability to change the perception that faculty or staff hmm. create of them based on limited interactions. And I think that is what lends itself to a sense of targeting. You know, the challenge that I have, and I have to continue to work on my ability to understand it in the appropriate context is we talk about discipline and a big part of my role is restorative accountability practices, as I like to call them. And within discipline, I think the reason why I, just, I struggle with that word is because it just automatically assumes a punitive connotation. And I think we work really hard to look at and conduct discipline in a manner that is focused on addressing the whole child. I think it is about like the skill versus the will, right? Mm. And a lot of our students lack the skill. And when we are an SAT, when you look at the intersection of attendance and academic performance and behavioral challenges, it starts to make sense as a profile. But when you start to source, well, what lends to them making it on that list? Well, if I can't engage with content, there's going to be some behavioral challenges for me in the classroom because I'm not connected. The very nature of structural racism is rooted in institutions. Public education, public schools are an institution, and they're institutions that are not equitably funded. They are institutions that are not equitably staffed. There are institutions that are not equitably programmed because it all boils down to money and resources. So 
if you're coming from a failing school, if you're coming from an under-resourced school that, you know, the quality of education because the staff, you know, doesn't have the same, you know, they're not licensed or, you know, they're not as proficient in their, their area, you're not building the skills that are going to help you compete and be able to, you know, go into honors or into AP. So you're already kind of set up at a deficit. We started thinking about racism as a illness or a virus. Is it something that could be passed from one person to another? Is it something that could be treated? Could we develop a treatment model to help people free themselves from the symptoms of racism? Maybe like substance use disorder, alcoholism, and drug addiction, it might not be something that we could provide a cure from, but a treatment that would help people to identify symptoms and manage the effects of it, manage its impact on their lives. One of the models we've used is stages of change. We're hoping that we can engage our listeners as well as our guests in moving from pre-contemplation to contemplation to awareness to action and maintenance. And it's a tall order, but we feel like through having conversation, we can create awareness. And once people have awareness, there's more of a motivation to take action. So if we plug this into the stages of change model, where do you think the school is? Are they in pre-contemplation? Do they not realize it's a problem? Are they thinking about it? Or are they aware of it and just not taking action? I think they've been forced into contemplation because of everything that's happening in the world. Mm -hmm. And they tried to hide a little bit because of COVID. And we have, you know, their expectations were that, you know, the high school still meet all the state standards during COVID. Okay, but we also need to take into account everything that's happening in the world, mm -hmm. right? And so whether they want to or not, I think if in the positions they are in, they are going to be forced to start contemplating. Mm. Forced by who? You know, the community, maybe. We just need community members to step up and support the notion of this change. It seems impossible to ignore the components that are keeping this in place. So when you present this, or, or have you presented this to the school committees? And if so, what's their response? I think you can coddle your privilege and pretend like nothing's happening. Mm -hmm. If you don't turn on the news and you don't have you know, people stepping up and challenging you, it's very easy to just turn a blind eye. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And so what's the response? The response is, thank you so much for the work that you're doing. We really stand behind you. That's the response. That's got Nicety, nicety, nicety. It's very frustrating. Mm -hmm. Well, that's the thing. It's like every effort isn't going to change hearts and minds, right? But you can plant a seed. And when that seed, you know, germinates, we don't know, maybe for some it's, you know, three, four, five, six, seven years down the line. For others, it's immediate. But I think that we are going to do exactly what has been done. On the flip side of this, we are going to leverage the opportunity to keep it on the radar. And the idea would be to engage more and more people that can leverage their influence, social influence, financial influence, to really help hold these entities accountable. Mm -hmm. Zoom has made it a lot more accessible for folks to attend school committee meetings mm -hmm. that otherwise wouldn't have. Is attendance up? Attendance is up, like a hundredfold. Whereas before, when we were on the ground, yeah, we didn't get people coming to school committee meetings unless there was an agenda item that was relevant to them. Mm -hmm. But now people tune in because they're interested in the whole of what's going on. And mm -hmm. it's time for folks to step up, to stand up and look at the state of affairs. So how can the high school do a better job to initiate the changes needed on an administrative level? You have to start with looking at who 
are our policymakers. And if people aren't going to, you know, apply to be on these positions and go through the electoral process, like, do we appoint people? Do we appoint people from the different socioeconomic backgrounds, different races to assist with the policymaking, right? That's number one that I think of. And then you look at our staff and our faculty. Where are we looking for people to work in our schools with our kids and make it equitable for everybody? Hmm. Where do we start? An interest, I suppose. People just need to be open to the idea that they are not living in a utopian society where racism and discrimination doesn't exist. And if they can just acknowledge that as a first step, I think that that's a mm -hmm. good beginning. And what privilege they're going to give up. I think that's really important also. And again, you can keep your eyes closed and just live in your your white world and, and be be okay. But if you really are a true community member, you know, you have to step up. Do you think that white parents see the fact that there are plenty of uh, role models and mentors in the schools and that the curriculums are heavily emphasized by white Western European standards of normal? Do they see that as privilege? I mean, I wouldn't think that they would see it as anything because it's just part and parcel part of their lives. Right. There's no reason to acknowledge it outside of just what's normal. It's right. always been there. It's always been there and mm -hmm. it always right. will be in their, in their purview, you know? At Beetlebone Corner, we kneel for eight minutes and 46 seconds in remembrance of somebody who was killed by police violence. And what became abundantly clear is that there is so often that contributes to the death of the person. Is the school doing enough to provide mental health services to kids of color? I don't know if the school is doing enough to provide mental health services to anybody. Mm -hmm. I think we are providing the services we can provide with what is available to us. And there are very few people who I think specialize in working with adolescents because I do feel like it's a specialized group. So I guess that's the long way to say, no, I don't think we are. Okay. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about George Floyd. And for many of us, we were very familiar with the regular video of unarmed black people being killed by white police officers. Some would say we, as a country, have grown numb to it. But something different happened with the video from George Floyd. I have felt like it helped us as a country to jump into the stage of awareness. That for a lot of us, we became aware of a problem that we didn't really think existed and I just wanted each of you to reflect on where you were and how you felt when you learned about the murder of George Floyd. Within a few days, I reached out to Dakir. Well, where were you when, when you heard it? Did you see the video? Did you hear about it? Oh, I saw the video. I feel like the people in my sphere who I do believe are insightful and intuitive to who they are as white people, it was the topic of conversation. I don't remember where I was. Um, I didn't watch the video for quite some time because I couldn't. Um, you know, it, it, uh, it's, uh, the type of news that I'm not surprised when I see it. So I guess I've become numb to it, but I think in the, I think in this case that, uh, it really scared me, um, you know, in the backdrop of our political climate. And there was something different about this. Um, and I can't quite put my hand on it, but 
it really made me realize I've spent a lot of time, I think, deluding myself into this idea that, you know, reaching a certain, you know, level economically and set me apart. And I think it just reminded me that it doesn't matter that I am, I'm still as, as open as, you know, as, as, as likely to have that be an experience. You hear people say a 50, 50 chance that if you get pulled over, like as a black male, like, and I think about my daughter and like these instances of black men being shot with their kids in the car. And Mm -hmm. it's like, there's no boundaries. Um, And it, it, it petrifies me. And I think that um, I consciously try to compartmentalize it because I already navigate a lot of this world feeling anxious and feeling not safe. And that, you know, just really, I don't know, put me over the top. Mm -hmm. And I think the best thing that I could do was, you know, when Amy checked in on it meant a lot. And uh, and she's like, we have to do something. I'm like, I know we have to do something. I didn't know what that was. And, you know, we did a community forum. Uh, and it was amazing. I think what really, though, I don't know. I think what really, I think, helped me through is, you know, I, I, I had white friends that reached out, you know, and uh, and that meant a lot. And I have a collection of like five really good friends that I met, you know, from childhood, all brothers, you know, we all keep in touch with each other, motivate and encourage each other over, you know, the years. And, um, and I worry about them. Mm-hmm. I worry about them being in Boston and in New York and in South Carolina. And I worry about getting a call that one of them has been shot or killed. I mean, it's just like, so action helps me kind of like deal with it. I think, but a level of denial, and like Amy was saying earlier, being able to shut out the noise, and if I don't turn on the TV, I'm not going to be confronted with it. But there was just something so surreal about that situation. Like, like life didn't matter. That life didn't matter because of the color of his skin. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of where I landed. And I think now, um, I don't know. I just, you know, I, I, I come to, I think, you know, I think like all people of color and many, I mean, it's, it's, we live and operate in so much trauma that like, it's just a matter of time before you become numb to it. And it's just like, makes me want to further go inward and shield my family and just not acknowledge, but I know that that I can't do that, but Mm -hmm. it is very hard. Doing this work is very hard. Talking to a white school committee and trying to like make them understand is very hard. Justifying why we have to put, like why we're putting Black Lives Matter on our marquee in it is very hard and not because we don't have the words, but I am so angry and I really want to say, I don't have to explain anything to you you're not worthy of it, and you need to explain why this is still happening to me. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's tough.
It is tough. I, I've talked to a number of people that feel exactly like you do. And um, I started to protest. I went to Boston and I went to Philadelphia. I went to my hometown of Horsham, Pennsylvania. There was a protest in my local high school, which blew me away. And it helped me because it gave me a place to be angry. And as I chanted and screamed and shouted and put my fist in the air with other people, it helped me to release some anger that I've been holding on to for quite a long time. And I don't know that the anger has really subsided. It's still there. I, I just felt it when I heard you talk about it. And it feels like our country for a time was angry. Like they were angry like I have had been waiting for our country to be. So I don't know if, if things are going to change. I mean, it feels like there has been some change as a result of his murder. It feels like, you know, there are some... You know, now body cams are going to be mandatory in some places and chokeholds are going to be made illegal. And there's been, you know, more police have been held accountable for the first time in my memory. I mean, never before have police been held accountable like they have now. And I guess that feels good. I don't know if there is going to be a huge change in the system because the system's still in place. And in some ways, we see the reaction from the right that they are doubling down on the rhetoric. They are digging into their position. And I'm afraid, too. And that's hard to say. Do you feel like our country has, has woken up? I believe in youth-led mobilization in pursuit of social change. And I think we have youth that have kept these issues on the forefront and are driving change and I think they're influencing their families. I think they are helping shift historical thinking. I am unable to say that our country has woken up until our leaders are able to follow suit. Mm -hmm. And maybe we'll get their progress. You know, I always tell my students progress, not perfection. Mm -hmm. I think there's progress. Amy, where are we nationally in the stages of change when it comes to race? I think the circles I run in we're ready for change. I know I'm ready for change. I know that um, I'm wide awake right now. And I think one of the things I do best is listen to young people and to Dakir's point about these youth-led activism. You know, we see it here in our community. And if the one thing that I can do is bring kids together, whether they're alumni or our current students, and better support them and provide them those safe spaces they need to support each other, that's a step in the right direction mm -hmm. because there's something fired up. Mm -hmm. One of my roles is to keep fueling that. Dave Chappelle said it well. He said, I'm comfortable in the backseat on this one. Let mm -hmm. the youth drive. So Amy and Dakir, I really want to thank you both for being here. I really appreciate your honesty and for what you're doing for our community and for the students, not just the students of color, but all the students and families, because as we know, systemic racism hurts all of us. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you again for listening, and if you like what you heard, please share our podcast with your friends and family. Shed is produced by Amy Schumer, Renee Richardson, Jack Ebby, Tony Phillips, Chris Fisher, and the Vineyard Gazette.